It is the 200 level episode 81. Mike Carpenter here from the basement for Miller time. What better thing to call this podcast because finally we get the news that Adam Miller is in fact signing with the University of Illinois. And not that this in and of itself should be a surprise, but with everything that's transpired for Illini basketball and then really by extension, the lack of things that have transpired for Illinois football, we needed some good news when it comes to revenue sports. Whenever they start playing again, we don't know. But it is a lot more calming to know that the best player in the state of Illinois, according to the Mr. Basketball Award, certainly top three player in the state, is in fact coming to Illinois. The Mac Irvin Fire Pipeline seems to be alive and well. And a dynamic shooter is going to be on next year's team for a team that looks to have a few more shooters than we did the year before. So a lot of good news to unpack here. I am going to contrast it a little bit with what's going on across Kirby Avenue over uh, Memorial Stadium and the Smith Football Center, because what is going on or what is not going on, I should say, is beginning to become alarming. Not that it wasn't troubling before, and we've talked about it quite a bit on this podcast, but it's getting worse while other teams are getting better. So we will get into that as well. And that's not all. We got Casey Bogusloff for the second half of this podcast and excited to get him on and get his take on not just Adam Miller, because he is an Illini basketball fan as well, but baseball. He's a baseball expert. And out of all the sports that we're longing to come back to us, I think now that we're starting to get some warm weather out there, for me, baseball is the itch that needs to be scratched. And whenever that starts again, and in whatever format, I'm going to be so pumped for that first baseball game to sit down on the couch in presumably a still modified shelter at home sort of situation and watch some live sports, specifically my Yankees and the request for number 28. So we will talk with Casey Boguslaw about all things baseball, of which there are many, many topics, not just getting the game started again, but even today, the Red Sox, there are penalties that were announced for them, not nearly as stringent as those that were announced against the Astros months ago. Uh, We got the Astros to talk about. We got all the divisional races that we would have seen play out and still may see play out later this year. So a busy show today. Kind of feels like a radio show in a traditional sense because I'm coming on a little bit before the Adam Miller signing and doing so under the auspices that I won't have to go back and re-record this. That, in fact, he is going to say University of Illinois. I'm booking it. I'm guaranteeing it. And the good thing is, if that isn't true, I would just delete this opening segment in the first place. You'd never hear it. But all that said, got to remind you, the 200 level is brought to you by DP Doe. Order online at dpdoe.com for all the best deals and prices. You can get custom zones with any topping you want. You can get some of their favorites, the Maui Wowie, the buffer zone or two that immediately come to mind. They got their amazing dipping sauce for the calzones. They got great sides like tots, and it's all at a very reasonable price. And best of all, they deliver anywhere in Champaign-Urbana. So you don't need to leave the house. You can stay in, stay away from people. Let them bring the calzone goodness to you. Order online at dpdo.com. Also, 4th and Kirby, online at 4thandkirby.com. Coupon code 200LEVEL or the 200LEVEL. Either one works. 10% off your order. And as we get in these warmer temperatures, they got plenty of t-shirts that are perfect for spring and summer weather. And hopefully, maybe that September tailgate, right? Who knows? fourthandkirby.com. Again, fourthandkirby.com. Also, Brian Hansen, State Farm agent. Online at brianismyguy.com. Trevor Valise's favorite domain. It is a pretty cool domain. I won't deny that. Live, auto, home, renters, business, whatever you need. Brian and his staff, not only are they insurance experts, but they are local products. So they have your local interest at heart. Brianismyguy.com. Also, Alani Inquirer and the Champagne Showers Podcast Network on Twitter at 217Showers. Partners in the, I guess, relaunch of the 200 level, but we're almost 50 episodes. We're coming up on 50 episodes since we restarted this thing. And certainly the quantity has only increased 
really into basketball season and beyond because, well, now I have not much else to do. But as we sit here in April, the month that I was starting to dread even before this pandemic thing, I didn't know what we would talk about necessarily on a week-to-week basis. And this coming from someone that used to do a daily show for two hours. And the thing is, though, when I'm sitting here in the basement alone, I need topics. I need things to talk about. Otherwise, it's going to become a slog. And fortunately, well, some cases fortunately, other cases not so. Illinois sports have given us plenty of fodder in the offseason, even though it did start a little bit earlier than we anticipated. So we lose Kofi, presumably, to the NBA draft. At least that's what his announcement looked like. Though I think people are optimistic that maybe he decides or elects to come back to Illinois, and that would certainly change things. Io ends up going to the pros. Didn't really see any reactions that said, oh, come on, Io, what are you doing? I saw more gratitude than any, anything from Illini fans on Twitter, on social media, and I think that's apt for what he did for this program in such a short amount of time. So Io's gone. Andres Feliz, we knew he'd be gone, but that still hurts. Alan Griffin, gone. That hurts. But my whole thing from the beginning was, as long as you have the dynamic duo, let's call them that to use a cliche, of Adam Miller and Andre Curbelo, that you would be in good shape. Now, without Kofi this year, certainly you're, I mean, a bubble team, I don't know where you're at, and I know there's other additions you can make via the transfer market, but in terms of long-term, sustainable success, Adam Miller, Andre Corbello, it's that duo that, as much as I love Io and his place in Illinois history, what is almost as important is following up that immediate success with sustained success, and the guys to do that are your point guard in Andre Corbello and your superstar shooter, in Adam Miller, who continues that momentum in the state. Mac Irvin Fire guy, uh, one who seems to have a little bit of pull when it comes to other AAU teammates and things like that, whether it even be Weston, the other kid that might reclassify from Mac Irvin Fire. But as we sit here today, we can finally exhale, sigh of relief. Adam Miller is, in fact, going to play for the University of Illinois. And the reason that I think it started freaking us out, and even myself, if I didn't care to admit it as much, it was starting to kind of seep in there seeds of doubt. You know, why is he not signing? What ulterior motive or reasoning would there be for him not signing? Io seemed to be the biggest hurdle and why he might have been holding off on that announcement. Io makes the announcement last week. Maybe Adam Miller decides, I'm going to give Io his time. Next week, I'm going to make my own time. And what is a not really huge deal, he's doing a Zoom meeting for media types and making his announcement there. But I think there is some respect that he is showing Io for just kind of holding off on it and letting that news simmer for a bit. Now it's his moment. And we probably should have felt better from this from the start when we talked to Jeremy last week. He was pretty adamant that, yeah, Adam Miller's probably going to sign with Illinois. Not, not a big thing to worry about. I know Derek Piper's been saying much of the same thing. But when you get into big-time recruitments, you will occasionally run into these weird, fuzzy waters. I don't think it says anything about Adam Miller, the person, that he didn't sign on the dotted line right away, or that he didn't sign on the dotted line the first day that he could have during the signing period, for a couple reasons. One, you got the pandemic situation going on, so there's just general uncertainty. Whether Io goes pro or not, there's just general uncertainty about when these games are even going to be played. The timelines, the deadlines, all of that seem to be in flux. And the other factor, of course, being Io. And we knew that from the start. It seemed to be the worst kept secret around that, hey, if Io is here, that might complicate things with Adam Miller coming down. If Io is gone, certainly Adam Miller is coming in. I get it from a playing time perspective. I think that he would have been able to coexist just fine with Io. And perhaps if Io had stayed, we'd still be having this announcement today that he would be coming to join Io, former teammate, and 
it would make a lot of sense from a basketball perspective. I think the team would be really scary if Iowa were to come back, and I guess there's that 0.1% chance of that happening, though I'm not holding my breath. But when it comes to next year and beyond, I'm presuming that Adam Miller is more than a one-and-done. Doesn't strike me as that. I could see him having similar growing pains to an Io, where, you know, November, December, in the non-conference slate, he's fine. You see flashes, but you don't see that consistency. I do think you will see flashes right away from this kid because of who's running point in Andre Corbello. The fact that Trent Frazier, I, I hope, I assume, either one, that he's going to have a really strong senior year, only opening up the court that much more in half-court offensive sets. The interior is the question mark, and if you have a Kofi, that only opens up things even more on the perimeter for these guys that this year you're hoping can actually shoot it at a higher clip than we did the year before. But Adam Miller is just what this team needed. If he would have been on the team last year, scary to think about what just one more shooter would have added to it. I know that that's kind of a silly game to play in hindsight, wouldn't have happened, but just that kind of player would have been huge. And as we see this identity shift for Illinois basketball in terms of what Brad Underwood wants to run out there offensively, we're seeing a team with length and shooting ability, and he gives you both. He also gives you some swagger. He has some superstar qualities to him. Already gives himself the nickname Ace Wolf. Number 44, he's branding that number for himself. This is a kid that knows how to market himself. And I think we can presume, at least, that he will have a pro career and likely in the NBA at some point. This is important, I think, from a program branding perspective. I talked about Ace Wolf and all the branding he's doing individually. But for Illinois basketball and becoming cool again, Adam Miller is one more step to becoming cool again. He's a cool kid, looks sharp, knows how to carry himself, and has a poise and a swagger that kind of belies his age. So when I couple all of these factors in, the on the court, the off the court, the image, the perspective that others will have of Illinois basketball, that they got yet another high-profile recruit. I'm beginning to think, okay, these are all steps into that sustained success, that run that we hope to achieve over the next decade or so, which we've seen at Illinois time and time again. Two most recent examples would be Lou Henson, of course, and then the Lon Kruger Bill Self run up through the first three years of Weber. We're talking decades-long success that can be sustained, and it takes a few players out of the gate. If you go back to Lou Henson, you're probably saying, okay, Eddie Johnson, Mark Smith, those are the early guys, and then you get a Derek Harper. You get in the mid-80s with a guy like Ken Norman, and then the final line, right? You're building stud after stud after stud, building class on top of each class. You get into the Lon Kruger, Bill Self, Bruce Weber era, and it begins with the Henson holdovers that Kruger had a lot of success with, but then you start getting into the Peoria pipeline with McLean and Griffin and Frank, and then Brian Cook, all the downstate studs that What fortuitous timing, after you did not hire Jimmy Collins, that you have all these downstate guys to ease what could have been some serious pain for not hiring the Chicago guy. But again, stacking studs on top of studs, class after class. That all ends in the Weber era. Three very good years. With self's players, but still Weber maximized it. And then a very disjointed recruiting effort from top to bottom. The entire tenure of Weber when it comes to recruiting. If you think about it, Sean Pruitt was an early win for him, and he was not able to keep any of that momentum going. Jamar Smith ended up being a good player, but he was a diamond in the rough. Chester Frazier was a bit of a reach for a team that was just coming off a national title. No offense to Chester, who made a good career for himself. But these were players that seemed to fit the Purdue model, not the top 15 caliber Illinois model that had been established by Kruger himself. Significant drop-off. Gross couldn't reel him in with enough frequency. Hence, it didn't last. 
So now you're starting to see Underwood. And I'll even go back to the Mark Smith thing, which I was wrong on. A lot of people were wrong on as he sort of toils in obscurity down in Missouri when I said that he could have the D Brown kind of effect. Yeah. Okay. I've said some things that have really come back to bite me. That one will live in an infamy forever. And I understand why, but think about the impact at the time of getting Mark Smith right after he was hired. Mark Smith, Io DeSumo, Adam Miller, Kofi Coburn, kind of seemingly out of nowhere, right in the middle of that. And you're finding someone in Brad Underwood and the staff in general that are landing these guys with greater frequency. So as we sit here today, April 22nd, 2020, and think about the future of Illinois basketball, I'm hoping that 10 years from now, we look back on today as just another step in establishing a decade-long streak of success. I think it is very possible. I can't say likely because so many things can happen. We see success as fleeting, but man, is it certainly more possible with a guy like Adam Miller in the fold, not just for what he's going to do on the court, but what he is going to do in terms of recruiting momentum, with which this coaching staff seems to be doing a pretty good job of. If you don't get Adam Miller for whatever reason, we would have started to pucker up a little bit, as Lante would say. We would start to freak out and probably for good reason. Why is this happening? Why are we losing Kofi? And Io, even though he expected that. And then why are we not able to reel in Adam Miller even after Io decides that he's going to go pro? That would be time to start freaking out a little bit, get a little bit anxious, and would be totally understandable and reasonable given the circumstances. Don't need to go down that rabbit hole. Instead, we can look forward to next year and beyond. So this is a big recruitment, and it is nice to finally have it over because any time that you are in on someone like this, until they sign their name on the page... It's really hard to get too excited. As an Illinois fan, as any of you listening, we've been burned before. And it is very understandable while we're gun-shy about things like this. Though, what we're starting to see is a trend that Underwood is getting these high-level guys, especially the in-state guys. The three biggest in-state guys of the last three years. Mark Smith, Iotasumu, Adam Miller. Now, one of these things is not like the other. I get it. But... Nonetheless, that's a pretty good streak of in-state guys for someone that is now entering his fourth year at Illinois. For all the question marks I had about Underwood, what I appreciated is that he was able on the court to be malleable and flexible based on his personnel. And then the parallel tracks idea that I know Mike, Mike Thomas had talked about before, the parallel tracks in college basketball are on the court and off the court specifically recruiting. And in order to have a really successful program, you need to have both established and you need an identity for both. Well, the identity flexible on the court, and I do appreciate that from Underwood, in an era where every team that you field is going to be vastly different, and you factor in transfers and everything like that, from a year-to-year basis, the entire complexion of one team can look entirely different. So that flexibility on the court, much appreciated. But it is a very focused recruiting effort, it feels like, from the staff. Identify talent, get them early. And it's a mix of getting the stud in-state guy, which when you look at really any run that Illinois has had, they've needed that biggest stud in the state of Illinois, or at least one of the main studs in the state, to keep that success going or to reach a new level of success. You need the in-state guys at a place like Illinois. But in addition to that, finding these guys, the transfer market for your Hutcherson and Grandison, your transfer guys that are going to make an impact this year, Kofi seemingly out of nowhere high school recruit that you got in on and that you landed. And then other guys mixed in with that. Andres Feliz, Juco, kid from the Dominican, I believe, right? Uh, Georgie 
played in Jersey, originally from Georgia, the country, not the state. And this wide net that they cast. So it's a mix of proximity with, okay, get the Illinois stud. And they're doing that pretty well. And then cast an entirely different net all over to round out your roster. Keeping their options open, but also identifying guys early. Not getting into the situations that a John Gross did, where you would find yourself deep in a recruitment, maybe feeling like, eh, 40% we might get this guy. And likely alienating your second and third options all the while. No, instead Underwood's saying we're going with this. And fortunately, most of these guys, the main targets have said yes at a time where it seems like all it takes is the addition of an Adam Miller to ensure that you make a tournament and you keep these things going. As we said here, mid-April, we still don't know what the entire roster is going to look like. Kofi being back, that's the big question now. And if you get Kofi back, man, you're going to be good again. I don't know about as good as last year, but I don't think you're that far off. Entirely different team, but a much better shooting team. Kofi in a Big Ten where a lot of your bigs have already left. And Garza remains to be seen. It just seems like a very favorable setup for Illinois if Kofi comes back to be right back there in the top four of the conference. Kofi doesn't. You're probably on the bubble. But I would not hold it past this staff to go out and find an immediate impact big. That can soften the blow a little bit. I mean, I don't want... Georgie getting 30 minutes just as none of us do after what we saw last year but you couple in Georgie hopefully being improved with a decent transfer big there's still a way to make this work and make the tournament the good news is you are at a place now where losing one guy does not hamstring you it does not kill you you can overcome that and the guys you are bringing in whoa it's something to get excited about so Adam Miller that's a huge addition for Illinois and something that I'm certainly excited about and that swagger that I mentioned before that Io had, and certainly Adam Miller has, by all indications. This is important, I think, for a fan base that has been starved to feel good about Illinois basketball again. Because I've said it before on this podcast, I said it on the air back in 93.5, and I mean this. If Illinois basketball is doing well, Illinois football can do whatever they do. I'm used to it. We're all used to it. We would love for them to be successful, but that's a bonus. The given is that Illinois basketball gives us something to look forward to every year. You're getting back to that point. It seems like you've gotten over that first hurdle. Let's just call it what it is. They made the tournament this year. I know there wasn't a tournament, but they accomplished their mission, and they were a game out of winning a conference title. That's ahead of schedule. And there's no reason for me to believe that there's going to be a dramatic drop-off. Certainly a drop-off if Kofi's not back, and maybe a pretty measurable one, but not to the point where all of a sudden you lose all momentum and you think, oh, God, what are we going to do? Nah, man. You got Andre Corbello, Adam Miller in the fold for the next two, three years, and probably Corbello for the next four. And when you got Luke Good already in 2021, again, identifying guys, bringing them in early, four-star caliber kids, the occasional five-star to really keep things rolling and plant yourselves firmly in top 20 national relevance. That's where this program belongs, and it seems like that's what the staff's doing. That's the good news. And I wanted to give a lot more time to the good news. There is bad news, though. Or I should say no news. No news is the better way to go with it for Illinois football. This was a concern right after the four-game winning streak when you didn't really see the interest levels of high school recruits improve that much. When you lost the last three games of the year, two of them in not-so-good fashion. Let's be real with the Northwestern and the bowl game. And as we sit here today... Of course, with all the uncertainty surrounding when or if these games are even going to be played for college football and the likelihood that when they are, it won't be in front of fans. 
I mentioned tailgating. I think that people, if there were college football games on a Saturday, let's say, and there weren't fans in the stadiums, I'd make my own tailgate here at the house, which is essentially what we've been doing anyways. But all of that is hinged upon being actually excited for your team. And at the start of every year, I find a way to conjure up that excitement. I do. Even if I know it's probably not going to be all that great, like Lovey's second year, it's football, let's go, let's drink and have some fun with friends and then we'll go into the game just when you're at the tip of your buzz and mm, then you're quickly down three scores in the first quarter. Now, I know that we aren't probably going to be seeing that a whole lot this year. I don't think that this team that Lovey's fielded for this upcoming season is by any means bad, but they're probably firmly on the side of mediocre. And as Jeremy talked about, and I know he's not blowing smoke, he's not someone that is going to you know, exaggerate what he sees in order to curry favor with Lovey or Josh Whitman. Jeremy believes this, so I'm I'm going to put a lot of stock in this, that this is a pretty talented team when you look at certain individuals. Though he would agree that there are positional groups where there's a lack of depth and question marks. Defensive line, for example, I think he said there's there's guys, you know, there's guys with size and athleticism. We don't know what they really have in any of these guys, but maybe they'll figure it out. But beyond this year, they could likely go six and six with this schedule. And that wouldn't surprise me, and I wouldn't be disappointed or over the moon with it. It'd be fine, and in the history of Illinois football, I think you take that, but it's what lies ahead in 2021 and 2022. This idea that what you did last year with Brandon Peters and Josh Matterbebe and Wale Batiku, that you can replicate that year in, year out, and bring in enough of these immediate, immediately eligible transfers to keep that thing rolling and not have some serious dips. The four-year high school recruiting has been abysmal, and this is not anything that I would have anticipated when Lovey was hired. In fact, when Lon and I were doing that show on a Saturday afternoon, when all this buzz was starting to really boil over and we had Ryan Baker come on and effectively confirm that Lubby Smith was going to be the coach and that would be announced Monday. The immediate excitement I had was the idea that there isn't going to be a ceiling on recruiting, kind of like with Ron Zook. You knew that there were some holes there as far as coaching are concerned. And I knew that with Lubby Smith, there wasn't that college coaching background, at least not for a long time, and that there would probably be some struggles in that regard. But with that personality that name recognition, he would be able to bring in better talent at Illinois than Beckman for certain, and even at the tail end of the Ron Zook era. As Jeremy said last week, and again, I agree with this, the high-level guys that Lovey has brought in, they have been better than the Beckman recruits and the last two years of Ron Zook, but there are so few of them. And then the drop-off is huge. There's a major valley there between the Marquez Beesons of the world and these high school recruits that you're going after now that just aren't really interested in you. As Minnesota and P.J. Fleck, they get their fourth in-state kid. I say in-state, not Minnesota, Illinois. Their fourth Illinois kid already commit to the 2021 class. And we're sitting here with none or one, I forget. But it's not a very long list, just like last year. So the problem staring this program in the face right now is that there's not a lot of depth to begin with, and that when you lose the high-level talent, you got nothing. In a conference that is not going anywhere, in a division that's not going anywhere, we saw Northwestern have their bad year. We know Pat Fitzgerald is not going to be doing that year in, year out. He's going to get back to the seven, maybe even eight wins a year category. Wisconsin, as boring as they are, and the fact that, yes, you beat them last year, 
Come on, they're Wisconsin. Iowa's Iowa. Nebraska, kind of a wild card in this, but they're certainly out recruiting you. Minnesota, ugh. And if they pay P.J. Fleck enough, there is a chance that P.J. Fleck stays there and actually builds something sustainable and is not using West, uh, excuse me, Minnesota as some sort of stepping stone to a larger job. I know that's the assumption, but if he gets paid well enough up there, maybe he sticks. And then Purdue, of course, you know they are what they are, and you're probably a little bit better than Purdue this year. But again, when you get beyond that, it's bad. And there is no plan. Levy said as much without saying it directly, when he had, I think, a press conference, what was it, two, three weeks ago? And he acknowledged, as I think any coach would, that the COVID-19 situation has thrown a wrench into previously laid plans. But that hasn't stopped other coaches from bringing players in. It is the reality. It's an unfortunate reality. But these kids are still going to sign somewhere. They just are not interested in signing with Illinois. I know that not being able to bring kids in and see the facilities, certainly that does not help. But pictures alone could probably tell a kid, hey, the facilities are great. Clearly, it's something else that is causing the disconnect or the disinterest in joining this football program. And it's lovey. Let's call it what it is. When the book is written on this, it will be a massive failure for Josh Whitman if this thing does not turn around. And I needed to add that qualification there in case for whatever reason this actually turns around and lovey gets this thing going. I don't see it happening. As much as we all got caught up in that wave of the four-game win streak, and for good reason, they were really exciting wins, a lot of turnovers on defense, a few big plays on offense, the comeback at Michigan State, the upset against Wisconsin. But even in the midst of that, it was the hope of, God, let this lead to something bigger. And they weren't able to capitalize on it with the new facility. And these are months before the pandemic. The season, the regular season at least, ended in late November. And you have a bowl game that you could sell through the month of December. And you still have January and February. And whether it's a dry period and whether they could actually bring kids to campus, I don't know all those dates or anything. But, you know, you're always in contact with these recruits in one way, shape, or form. And yet no momentum, no real plan. This is not sustainable. And the whole point of Josh Whitman and what he has said about Lovey over and over again is that we are here to build a program for long-term success. Now, they also mentioned the competing for championships, and I chuckled at that then. I said, just just go 7-5, seven, 8-4. Seven and five, eight and four. I don't care about championships for Illinois football. We won't be competing for many of them. I get it. I'm okay with it. I'm fine. I accept it. But they did mention long-term success, sustainability, building a program. This is not a program that is built for success. It's a program that's just sort of flailing around in the wind, a chicken with its head cut off that doesn't know what its strength is. Because I don't know what the strength is myself. I don't know if they know what the strength is. Maybe getting some diamonds in the rough, evaluating them well, developing them. But then you have this whole grad transfer thing that you were somewhat relying on for your success last year and are going to need to be relying on for your success in the next few years. Grad transfers that say, well, let's just mass exodus over to Illinois because they don't have four-year high school players. I'm going to play immediately. But if you don't match that with success on the field, you cannot become grad transfer you. And even if you did, even if you did, are you going to be striking at high enough percentage with these grad transfers, whether they're one or two years, to parlay that into sustained success? I don't think so. It's disheartening. And the problem is, as I mentioned a few podcasts ago, or what I should say compounds the problem, is that with this COVID-19 situation and the likelihood that you will have at least some games played without P. 
people in the stadium. And think of all the money involved with that, ticket sales, parking passes. And I know a lot of that is iFund-based, but that's still a lot of money that's not going to their pockets, regardless of how great the TV deal is. That makes it that much harder for this athletic program or any athletic program, to be honest, to fire a coach. So Lubby could stink this year, and what's the likelihood that they make a move on it? Will the budget allow for it? There's still a buyout. I know it's not that big, but this is a different ballgame. There's no playbook that athletic directors can use in this COVID-19 situation, and the only playbook that they really can probably refer to is their budget, which is not going to be good. So as I sit here today, it's this mix of really excited for Illinois basketball. Whenever that gets going again, maybe it's January, maybe it's November without fans, and then gradually we get people back in the State Farm Center for Big Ten competition. I watch most of the games on TV anyways. I would just be happy to have it back. Football, I'll be happy to have it back too. But it's harder to get invested in a team or a program when it doesn't feel like there's an actual vision or plan set forth. And unfortunately, that seems to be where Illinois football is right now. Pandemic aside, they're all dealing with it. And it seems like our coaching staff is sort of flailing in the wind, waiting, wondering who will sign, who's interested, eh, whatever. Lovey at his best, when he was winning games with the Bears, it was that no panic, never freak out, keep his cool. When you're winning, that's a great thing. In college football, unfortunately, the PJ Flex of the world are the ones getting the recruits. Lovey and that no panic style, it's not translating. And not that he would need to panic. You know, that, that's not exactly what I'm saying, but there has not been from the outset the sort of urgency that you need from college coaches, especially when you're trying to build a program that was starting from a very bad place. So yeah, he got you up to a certain level, but the problem is when he leaves it, it could be even lower than what he came in with. That's not hyperbole. If these recruiting classes do not pick up, we have a dearth of talent for 2021, 2022, and beyond. And you're going to have to find a really special coach out there that can come in and conjure up that enthusiasm right away and make up for lost time and bring in a bunch of guys. Oh, you know, like a PJ Fleck type who would have been available with this athletic program and played it right, but they didn't. And actually was available before he came in and promptly kicked Lovey's ass in Lovey's first year with Western Michigan. He was available. I'm not going to fault Josh for going and getting Lovey Smith. That's not the issue. We were all excited. We all knew that there was certain risk involved, but we thought that there was going to be a high ceiling. But man, the execution from inside the Smith Football Center, aptly named, I guess. Yeah, I guess you could say Lovey brought you that facility, which you still got to pay for that. Again, I'm not a financial wizard, but there's a lot of money tied up that just makes it all that much more difficult to fire Lovey if, in fact, he stinks this year. And you're stuck. And that only delays any sort of progress you can make going forward. It's a helpless feeling as an Illini football fan. Not so much as an Illini basketball fan. That's hopeful. Basketball hopeful, football helpless. And whenever those games do start, sure, I'll conjure up that excitement for game one. Likely not in the stadium, but from the comforts of my own home. As I make a spicy biscuit and sit down and enjoy Illinois football for what should be an okay year. They should be fine. Six and six. I'll take it. I'll take a crappy bowl game again much more than I would going 5-7 and seven and not making a bowl game. But, man, the excitement beyond that is next to nothing. All right, on that downer note, this is actually a really happy podcast. Adam Miller, again, signing with Illinois today. We have Casey Boguslaw. We're going to talk about all sorts of things. He's a baseball guy, but also an Illini fan, TV show fan as well. He, like me, is a big fan of Better Call Saul, which just ended on Monday. Best season yet, and this is Breaking Bad level stuff. 
I mean, I know it's a spinoff, but it is fantastic television, which most of it is on Netflix, if you need to check that out. So we're going to talk about a lot of stuff and excited to bring on old friend Casey Boguslaw. Casey, to get my baseball fix, I have been playing, because Nintendo 64 is my main console, and I had ordered a used copy of MVP Baseball 2001 with Derek Jeter on the cover. That has been scratching the itch for me. It's not quite doing enough and to the point where I'm reading these speculative articles about the season getting going. And even though I know it's not the safest and I know it's a little bit delusional to think they can do it, I'm thinking, come on, maybe, maybe there's a way. So where, where are you finding that balance between wanting baseball back and then also recognizing that there's a lot of, a lot of yellow tape and complications? Sure. So where I'm finding my balance right now is I have been deep diving uh, fully into the 2005 White Sox championship team. Um, championship team. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, uh, NBC Sportsnet is replaying one game every day uh, from that from the 05 season. They're do- they're they were planning on doing 70 games, which, of course, sounds like a lot. But, you know, we'll see if when they run out of the 70, are we are we still in this quarantine state? But uh I've even been, you know, keeping score, taking notes, just just to kind of get baseball in my life, and uh, started a, a Twitter account that kind of is a, a rewind account uh, at 2005 W Sox replay, uh, and basically just posting notes on what happened that day 15 years ago. Um, you know, who was the pitcher? You know, what, what happened in the game? Just a couple little notes, just to kind of keep myself. Uh, you know, if, of course, I'm missing the, the game uh, immensely, and so that keeps me you know, busy from one point and, and a little bit of baseball in my life. And then, you know, any downtime, you know, my wife does make fun of me when I'm sitting here watching these 2005 games, but <laughs> I, I got to get my baseball fix. Of course. Uh, I- and, and as far as, you know, what the outlook is on, on whether we're going to get real baseball, you know, it, I feel like that there are a lot of people that are pushing for it, which, which is good, but I, I obviously want them to be as safe and secure as possible. Um, you know, a lot of the comments that came out when, the, the plan um, that Jeff Passan released about playing in Arizona and having all of these guys quarantined in hotel rooms. And then, you know, the, it, it was a head scratching moment, you know, right when that article came out, because I was like, this doesn't sound like real life. And then, of course, the uh, immediate backlash was uh, baseball players tweeting, saying, uh, you know, I'm not doing that. Or, you know, their wives saying he's not doing that. And Mike Trout and Clayton Kershaw have already said that they would not really be interested in a in being away from their families for that long. So, um, you know, it doesn't sound like that plan would, I guess, be plausible. Um, but maybe it would to, to some degree if only it's, I don't know if they would ever get to the point where they only a select group of whoever wants to play would do this. Um, I don't know if it would get that drastic, but I think anything that Manfred has said in any of his pressers, uh, he has said that every option is possible. So I, I feel like it, it will happen. Um, I was reading a conspiracy theory that came out earlier this week that um, a lot of players got sick in spring training. There was a, a flu bug going around and huh. people think that that was COVID. Um, and that if it was COVID, that some of these players, you know, a good amount of these players might be <laughs> immune. Uh, and that's why that, you know, MLB was part of that, that immunity test that went around already that they haven't released the results to. But there is a conspiracy theory that MLB was picked for that immunity test because it's possible that they believe a large proportion of their population already may have gone through 
uh, having COVID. I'm not sure what to think of that. I mean, that is one of those conspiracy theories, sort of like the a lot of the Jordan gambling stories going on now, or like why he retired in the first place in 1993, that I could see, it seems reasonable enough. And when I think about this, just like you, that, that story comes out from Passon, and I'm excited at the prospect of it getting started. But then I thought of the day-to-day minutia of being sequestered in a hotel room or at the ballpark away from your family, unable to see them. And I thought that's a little dystopian to the point where I'd enjoy the games, but inevitably there would be human stories coming from this of the not so great um, well, psychological impacts on a player having to stay away from the people they love, presumably for months and only play baseball. And it's like, as much as I love baseball, I don't need them playing for my enjoyment at the expense of their own livelihood their mental livelihood right and you know of course you know real life is still going to go on for all these players what if they uh you know have a child on the way are they going to not see that child until the baseball season's over what if they have a parent that gets sick whether it's covid or anything you know related are they not going to be able to go see them um you know they're not robots and as much as sometimes you know even in the analytical world we we kind of look at them as robots as these kind of uh you know walking numbers um no it's not they're not they're they're real players that they're real people that have to go through a you know a everyday life like the rest of us and yes they get paid millions of dollars to to play a game but uh, you know, there is definitely uh, a very, very visible line. I'm not even going to say it's an invisible line that that uh, a human's not going to be, not going to want to cross to to keep them away from from the everyday life that they 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 are used to, and of course that they deserve, um, regardless of what their their job is. For selfish reasons, I was really looking forward to the baseball season. I think as a White Sox fan, you probably were too. And for the for the Yankees' reasons, obvious with Garrett Cole and. I'm looking at this from a mix of, I I just mentioned the more compassionate side. I'd like to think of myself thinking, well, you know, I hope these players are okay. Then there's the selfish sports fan side that's thinking, well, you know, this is kind of good because Aaron Judge and John Carlos Stanton, they were able to get healthy. And man, for a short 80-game season, the Yankees would be primed and ready to go. Um, Let's say, hypothetically, that this thing started in July. it, It feels like anything earlier than that might be a stretch. If it is July, do you think the most... Um, reasonable thing to do would be what seven inning double headers, eighty game season, stretching the playoffs into November, December in a warm site. What what parts of that initial plan did you think made a little bit of sense? Yeah, I think the neutral site for for playoffs or at least the World Series, if they do have to extend it to November. I mean, you've seen you know with Yankees games in snow and Chicago games the same way. Mm-hmm. You know when they the World Series gets pushed all the way back, then we get some really cold games. And baseball is supposed to be played in warm weather, and you know the fact that they do stretch sometimes into November, it, it, it you know is a little bit too much. So you know I've always thought the neutral site would make a little bit of sense in baseball. Of course, it would stink to be away from uh, you know home stadium, uh, home crowds, um, but I think now is as great of an example as any to to really kind of put that into effect so i I think that would be the number one thing that i i think not only would be possible but almost would have to happen um you know i think the arizona and florida things i guess are possible the way they would do it but you know comparing baseball to you know let's say basketball and i think there was a report that came out today that hockey is planning on a comeback in july i don't know if that's kind of a yeah if, if all things, you know, if all things go as planned, that they, they can, you know, ba- basketball and hockey are obviously in a much different situation where 
probably if either one of those come back, they would just have playoffs and maybe even a reduced field playoffs that they could do kind of quickly. And as of course, as soon as the team's eliminated, then you know they they don't have to worry about quarantining them anymore. Um, you know, baseball is in a completely different situation. The season hasn't started yet, and it's going to be the same thing with football. You know, do you even start a season? Uh, with all of these unknowns and, you know, um, needing all of these stadiums. And like, yeah, you mentioned, well, they do seven inning double headers. If they do play in Arizona and Florida, it's going to be over 100 degrees in July and August. Um, that's a whole different, uh, you know, added uh, implication to, to doing something like that. You know, could the could players even, you know, play at those uh, extreme temperatures? You know, uh, uh, Chase Field is obviously indoors, but most of the spring training facilities are not. So they would have to play day games. Would they have to play at 7 o'clock in the morning? I, I don't know. You know. Like I said, I'm going to go back to Manfred saying everything is on the table. Um, I think that they'll they'll try to do, you know, everything that they can. But obviously, they again, I'm going to have to go, go back to they're going to have to get agreement from the MLBPA and, uh, you know, I I think almost every player would have to agree on it, um, at least uh, without causing a huge, uh, you know, stir up with 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 the union. So, um, you know, it's just a different situation than what basketball is going to possibly do going into Vegas, where they could almost you know have the entire tournament within a hotel, and but then you're not even dealing with transportation. The players could just go back up to their rooms when they're done with the game, and you know uh, they could get a, a playoff series done in a week. You know, that's a whole lot different than what baseball is facing. For this season, whenever it gets started, if it gets started, what story, let's go with three. Let's go give you an arbitrary number here. But what three storylines were really standing out to you as we entered the 2020 season as things to watch? Yeah, it has to start with the Astros, of course. Uh, you know, I, we, you know, they're almost kind of getting away scot-free here with, with um, you know, not having to face, you know, the, the booing crowds and pitchers angry with them there was of course a ton of talk about you know who would hit those players and you know they were already counting the hits bat the hit batsmen that were happening in spring training games um <laughs> you know will that feeling go away you know if they get started in july i'm sure that there will still be um you know well i guess i'll, I'll take a step back there won't be a crowd so that yeah, they won't get, be fine. You know, the, the vitriol of a, of a full stadium at them um you know, hopefully we do get back to normal by April <laughs> um, of next year. Um, will that feeling still be as strong? Probably not. But, you know, I, I still think that the Astros would, would still hear it enough once they are, you know, making their first trip to Yankee Stadium or making their first trip to Progressive Field. You know, those fans would still, I think, probably take it, take their, their moment to, to, to get their feelings out about what the Astros did. So... That's definitely number one. Um, Quick question, two, Casey, um, uh, yeah, about the Astros. How good, uh, presumably AL West favorites again, but are we talking a potential downward turn from what they've been doing the last three years? Because maybe I'm looking at this with my Yankees colored glasses on, but I thought, well, you take Eric Cole out of the equation, and just in a playoff series last year, they don't probably win the whole thing without him. So I, I just feel like that, alone would be enough for me to kind of kick them down a peg and say, well, the Yankees are probably the favorite in the American League and then whoever in the National League. I, I felt like the Astros just with a mix of what happened off on, well, I say off the field, with a mix of the sign stealing issue and losing their ace, that that was enough to probably take them out of favorite consideration. But that might just be wishful thinking on my part. They're for sure, they were for sure the favorite still in the American League West. You know, the Angels, of course, did uh, quite a bit of um, – you know, transactions over the offseason, you know, bringing in uh, Rendon and all that. Um, 
but I don't think that they had enough to, to get to the Astros level. So I think that they would have still been a favorite to, to win the division. Um, yeah, the, the pitching certainly is going to take a step back, but that's part of the reason why they went out and got Granke. Um, you know, we'll have to. We would we would have been talking about Verlander's injury, and he wouldn't have started the season. Right. Now, if they have a shortened season, maybe he will be ready from the get go. Um, but no, I mean, of course, there's going to be pressure, and uh, you know, if uh, Alex Bregman or Jose Del Tuve gets off to a, a slump at, at the beginning of the season, you know, how much of that will affect them mentally? Um, you know, just thinking about, you know, how. You know, we, they, they'll know the articles that are going to be written about that, even if they don't read it. You know, they'll already know what people will be saying about them, uh, that they can't get it done without, you know, the, the, the added benefits that they were getting. So I could see that snowball into a situation where it would knock them down a couple wins, but I don't know if that's enough to lose the, the West. And then, of course, you know, yeah, po- any postseason uh, in baseball would be a coin flip, but. No, I mean, yeah, not having that Garrett Cole at the front of the the rotation, um, you know, you're gonna go on a what is it, 38 year old uh, Justin Verlander, yeah, um, and uh, you know, you they would hope to have uh, Lance McCullers back, and, and uh, you know, to kind of cover up some of that, um, you know, area that they were missing Garrett Cole in, but. No, I, I certainly would not consider them uh, an American League favorite. Um, uh, you know, in a postseason situation, and yeah, yeah, it would be the Yankees, and uh, you know, possibly you know uh, the plethora of um, American League Central teams, which I, I will get into uh, if you'll let me get to number two. Yeah, so number two is a White Sox fan. I figured that was where you're going with that because the AL Central. I know the Twins; you know, they're right there, and they're a dangerous team that can slug. White Sox with all these young guys and feeling like maybe this would have been the year where they get that 85-90 win wild card contention or maybe even compete a bit in the Central. But that division right there, that's your number two. And how would, in a full season, 162 games, how would you have most likely seen that shaking out? I did predict the Twins to win the division on a, on a separate podcast that I did before the season started when we thought the season was going to start on time. And it hurt me a lot to do it just because I am, I'm very, very, very excited for this White Sox team. I think that they did all the necessary moves that they had to do in the offseason to prepare them, you know, as much as any White Sox fans could have hoped for them to do between getting Grandal and getting Keuchel uh, to signing Luis Roberts. So he was ready for opening day. And yeah, they probably weren't ready to, to win. And that's kind of why I ultimately decided to go with the twins just because, you know, I like having my predictions being correct, I guess, probably even more than being a, a fanboy. But, um, you know, I, I think that the race would have been, would have been, uh, you know, very, very compelling throughout the entire season, it, and the Indians included, you know, because I still think that they had one year left in their window before, you know, whatever happens with Francisco Lindor. Uh, one thing that I, I want to bring up, just because it's one of my favorite topics, is just kind of uh, watching the actual baseball and what what changes were, was going to happen to that, what changes might still happen with that when they get back to, to playing. And what I mean by that is, um, you know, are we still going to have the happy fun ball that we had last season that the Twins – you know, let's face it, they depended on, you know, as much as anyone, you know, they set records for, for most home runs of the season and their team is just comprised with a bunch of big boppers that, that count on the long ball. So if that ball is a little deadened, does the offense still work as well as it did last season? Uh, you know, you kind of saw it first, you saw it first handed with, with the, the uh, playoff series with the Yankees. And there were some reports that maybe the ball had changed and the, what they, the twins did not have, uh, you know, their, their power guys, um, 
firing at all cylinders in that series, and that's uh, a big reason why they they kind of um, went away so meekly. Uh, they just they they weren't the same offense as they were all season. And you know, some people do attribute that to the ball. Of course, the Yankees have very good pitching, so I won't you know say that that, that had nothing to do with it. But if a Manfred was influenced by you know all of the hubbub and all of the bad press, you know, I'll, I'll call it because uh, I think there might be some deceit involved um, regarding from the commissioner's offense to to the teams. I think that they could have possibly been to been lied to about what they were doing with the ball, and maybe some of that was intentional. That is my theory that I, I lean on just because I think that science has shown that um, the ball was consistently uh, pr- produced a different way and that they the MLB does now own Rawlings and they own basically the, the process of how the ball was made. You know, would they kind of have responded to that with, you know, um, very aggressively the other way? And would they have deadened the ball? And would we have been looking at a completely different sport than we saw in 2019 um, with the ball not flying out of the park as much? And and if that were the case, I I think the Twins would have been really hurt by that. I I think that their power hitters, you know, uh, they don't have a lot of – you know, uh, guys that can hit, you know, back-to-back doubles, uh, you know, or, or score from first is kind of what I mean. You know, they, they wouldn't have been able to play the small ball game just because that's not how their lineup was comprised. So I think that would have hurt them a little bit. And it would have helped my, my White Sox because the White Sox have built a team a little bit more around speed with Luis Robert, who's supposed to be one of the fastest players in baseball now, Tim Anderson. Uh, coming off the batting title and, and a bunch of stolen bases, I, I think they would have been stealing bases a little bit more. And if if there would have been this different game, and I, I brought up the, at the fr- at the front of the pod that I've been watching these 2005 games, that you know the ball doesn't fly out as much, and this White Sox team was such a small ball team, uh, you know, a little bit more fun if I, you know, especially if you're you're into that type of baseball, you know, just more of the the you know constructing runs um, rather than just kind of sitting back and waiting for the long ball. Um, if that would have happened, if the ball would have didn't change that way it would have been a different game and i think it really would have i think it would have helped determine on what you know would happen or what will still happen in the american league central all right so that's number two and let me just project this based on what you said about the central and the rest of the american league we were probably looking at a situation where i think the yankees win the east but the rays get a wild card spot we're looking at the astros winning the west we're looking at the twins winning the central. I'd probably agree with that. And then that would leave a second wild card team. So would you have slotted the White Sox into that or what other teams were you maybe looking at for that second wild card? Yeah, I probably can't prevent my bias uh, enough to, to keep the White Sox out of it, but no, the angels certainly would have been in there. I think that offense is very, very good. Um, and, and the Indians as well. Um, you know, I, I, my take was, I thought the Indians were going to get off to a bad start and almost be forced to trade Lindor if that were to happen, you know, with a shortened season, you know, that's, that's maybe there isn't even a trade deadline or, you know, I don't know what they would do. And maybe the Indians are almost forced into keeping Lindor all season long. And I think that will keep the team very, very strong. So I I think the Indians would certainly be in play for a wildcard spot as well. Is there a third storyline you're looking at? Because I want to throw one out there that is only based on what's going on with the pandemic situation. And that would be that the Cubs who we enter this year and it feels like, okay, sort of not to equate them to the Bulls dynasty of the 90s at all. But with this last dance going on, I couldn't help but think that given all the Chris Bryant contract situation talk that, okay, this group of guys that we thought back in 2016 would have a sustained run of success and really in Cubs history, the best success of any team, that it was going to come to an end with this core. 
And now it feels like that may be shortened or completely taken away. Was that something that you were considering even pre-pandemic, that this was like the last ride for this core group of guys before the Ricketts inevitably really tightened the purse strings and just let this thing resolve the mediocrity? Yeah, yeah, I did, because I I think that's the reason, one of the reasons um, that the Cubs hadn't been spending too much money in the last two offseasons is because they knew all of these guys were approaching, you know, the end of their arbitration windows of their contract and that they were going to have to start paying these guys, uh, you know, quite a a lot of money. And uh, that was going to add up quickly. And I think they were going to have to kind of pick and choose on the members out of that window, um, out of this, you know, this, uh, this whole production that they've gone through they were gonna have to kind of choose you know okay which one which guys are we going to stick with and which wise which guys are we gonna have to to let go and one mm. of the things i was saying all offseason is i thought that the cubs were uh, definitely at least motivated to trade chris bryant because i thought i envisioned the path that they were going to choose was kind of uh we're gonna go behind a javier baez style team um you know obviously very very good defensive player but um you know uh, the, the uh he he's a a fan favorite, you know, he's not a, not only a Cubs fan favorite, he's an MLB fan favorite, you know, he's one of the faces of Major League Baseball, and I think that that, you know, has certainly upped his image with the Cubs, and I, I think that was who they were going to build around, and I, I think at at that cost, it was going to, to make Chris Bryant, you know, be the guy kind of, um, be the one that they weren't going to be able to spend, uh, you know, that, the, the, I guess, limited budget, I don't know why it's that limited, but the limited budget that they have, um, that Chris Bryant was going to be the one who kind of fell off there. Um, and, and, you know, a lot of, obviously a big, big story, you know, from the off season was uh, his, his, um, his case with, with, with um, the service time. And, uh, you know, he didn't win that, but that just means, you know, that there was an extra year of keeping him around, but maybe that's just, um, you know, extended their trade window of, of what they're going to do with him. So no, it's, it's about, you know, all of these windows, just reducing one year and uh, yeah i i guess if you if you force me into it i think that if you force me to make uh, a guess i think there will be some baseball played this season um but obviously it's going to be a whole lot different and i don't even know you know when we look back at it 10 years from now are we going to just put an asterisk on this entire season yeah. that it's just going to be so weird are we going to discount you know whoever does win a a championship for the season maybe but the one thing that you know, that we can't, uh, you know, uh, I guess pin a, put a pin on and just kind of reset when we get back to 2021 is these is contracts, you know, that all these players are going to move forward in, in their in their contracts. Um, and uh, one of the ones that I was going to bring up, you know, was when I was thinking about a number three was was the whole Mookie Betts situation. Sure. That he only had one year left on his contract and it was going to be on the Dodgers and then he was going to to go into free agency and maybe go back to Boston, maybe stay in L.A., maybe go somewhere else. But uh, it's possible if there is no baseball play that Mookie Betts will never play a single game in a Dodgers uniform and could even possibly go back to the Red Sox and still have an entire career where he never took off a Red Sox jersey, which I think would be you know, kind of funny when we look back at it several years from now. But if there was no baseball, I guess it'd be one thing that we could laugh about. Uh, <laughs> um, but uh, that was kind of where I was going to go. Just, But the bigger picture is that all of these players, including you know my White Sox, you know, that it's one year – a race from from windows and baseball i think has that philosophy and team building maybe more than any other sport is that they are all built on windows especially this rebuilding era era that we have gone through between the astros and the cubs and now the white Sox. is that you kind of 
you tear it down to rebuild and you're in contention for three, four, five, six years. But when you lose a season like this, that's just kind of erased from um, from what's going on right now. Then that just takes away takes a year away from those windows that you you built you spent so long trying to build. We mentioned the Astros, we mentioned the Red Sox, and today, right before we came on, the Red Sox or the news about the Red Sox came out that Manfred has served their not really. I don't know what the word would be. I guess penalties for what happened with their own sign-stealing issues. And I know there's a contrast between what the Astros did and what the Red Sox did. Certainly, the Red Sox, what they did seems to be far less severe, hence the less severe penalties. But at your core, as a baseball fan, let's say one is not offended at all and ten is really, really offended and pissed off. Where are you on that scale? Because I try to caution myself knowing that, well, I can't say for certain the Yankees haven't engaged in things. So I, I try to avoid going all the way to a 10, but also recognize that, you know, those two teams were the very teams that got in the way of my team making the World Series. So that's where I find the conflict a little bit. I've steadily moved up the scale. I think when the news first came out, I was very much on the argument that, you know, sign stealing is just something that happens in baseball. It's always happened in baseball. And yeah, they found a new sophisticated way to do it that, you know, may or may not, because I didn't really even know at the time, may or may not have been against a, a, ver- a written rule in the in the actual rule book um, or whether it was in the gray area. I just kind of thought, you know where I was going at it was, you know, if you know that a team is, is stealing your signs, then do something about it. And, and, you know, of course, maybe you're affected by it for, for a little bit, but eventually you'll figure it out and kind of do something different and, and uh, I guess, take away that advantage. And, you know, it sounded like the news was everyone knew that the Astros were doing it for several seasons um, and that teams either couldn't do anything about it or they weren't willing to really kind of take the extra step to do about it. But then as I kind of got into a little bit more, and of course the stories that came out that, you know, uh, you know, X pitcher, you know, faced the Astros on his on his one major league call up, and he got completely blasted, right. and he never played in the in the game. And of course, I'm just kind of making this up to to a degree, but there were those there were those stories that came out that you know um, a few players may or may not have lost their job because of a performance against the Astros that may have been against the cheating team, and and that some of that stuff obviously pissed me off, you know. I, and I didn't have the the first-hand experience like you were talking about with the Yankees, but you know that kind of made it more real to me um, that, that that they were they were they were cheating the other players in their profession, and that's why I, I think another thing that kind of hit me was that how mad these players were, uh, how mad a Mike Clevenger was that he said, you know, when I face them, they are going to pay <laughs> and I'm going to, to, to do that. <laughs> and of course we all knew what he meant, but uh, the fact that these players were so mad is, is what kind of moved me up the scale. So I, I'd say I'm at like a six or seven now that I, I, you know, I am offended by what, what the Astros did and yeah, what the Red Sox did. I, I found the, the, the fallout from what the, the story that came out today, uh, kind of interesting because i felt it was a little light the fact that they almost made a scapegoat kind of take all of the blame it felt like the when the astros or sorry when the the cardinals uh got busted for for hacking the astro system and that the, that one guy from the front office you know ended up in jail and almost took all, all of the blame single-handedly and that's kind of it just reminded me a little bit of uh just this replay official kind of taking almost all of it from the Red Sox. Yeah, Cora was suspended for a year, but you know he was already suspended for a year, so it doesn't feel like anything much more happened to the actual Red Sox. This is really sad coming from a Yankees fan, but who's their manager, the Red Sox? Who do they have now? Did they hire anybody? They did. I don't remember offhand, though. Yeah, uh, what's so bizarre to me about the Red Sox— 
Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, they were projected to be pretty bad by their standards this year. And it's so bizarre, Casey, because I look at the Red Sox and the Yankees' history since what happened in 2004. And you got the Red Sox winning in 04, 07, 13. And was there another? Yeah, two years ago, right? Right. So four championships since 2004. And yet they have had this really odd trajectory of two, three years of crazy success last place. Two, three years of crazy success, last place. Meanwhile, the Yankees have kind of been treading water at that 90, 92 win mark, no championships since 09. And of course, I'm taking the championships, but it's just really bizarre to see a big market, big money team like the Red Sox in a situation like they would have been facing this entire season where you go from being really good to just crap very quickly. And I'd say that's not a sustainable business model, but for all I know, two, three years from now, they're going to be winning another championship. Yeah, you know, you know, of course, the the the, uh, the story that I pull from that is is what Theo Epstein did to the Red Sox, and then what he's done to the Cubs, and it's kind of similar that he, you know, he built these winning franchises that kind of, uh, you know, didn't do as much as we thought they did, and he made some weird moves, I guess, after winning the original championship in both places. Yeah, of course, you know, he's he's a god among b- baseball general managers, but um, you know, he does take a little bit of um, you know blame for for kind of where those teams ended up and not, I guess, being in contention. Like you mentioned, these these weird down years intermixed between the, the winning years. So, yeah, you know, he, it, it, I guess it's just kind of maybe a weird baseball twist that the Red Sox have gone through. But, um, you know, I, again, you know, how bad would they have been this year? I don't really know. Yeah, you know of true. course, they lost they lost sale after, after the whole bets thing as well. Um, you know, he would have missed the entire season. Uh, they, they don't have price either. So, yeah, it probably would have been pretty bad. You know, we kind of just wrote in that you know, the, it would have been the Yankees race. And that's probably, you know, almost guaranteed to be right. But they still have, uh, you know, quite a few all-stars on their team. And, um, you know, the farm's kind of weak. But, I, you know, I, I, I guess, you know, and then they fired Dombrowski after, you know, a year after winning the, the championship. So, you know, they, they'll always be the Boston Red Sox and have that tradition and, of course, have the money. So I don't think they'll ever be out of it but uh, yeah yeah you know i think it's an interesting observation that you know and of course the stories that come with it are also funny too with the you know um uh, god what what's the uh the, the manager that's that they brought in and then fired him and he would he was the uh before the cora yeah oh my god the old baseball guy who uh, he was the mets manager bobby valentine there we go thank you I was thinking of when he uh, he got ejected from the game and came back wearing the fake mustache. Yeah. <laughs> this is and then meanwhile you're a Dodgers fan. Let's not you, but I'm just saying let's look at Dodgers fans and they're thinking you know here we are winning 105 games every year and we still got no World Series to show for it and it's it's tricky because I know that you know back during Tane J show uh, Jeremy would often say and I would totally agree with this that for Illinois basketball it's not really about Final Four banners as it is you know, winning Big Ten titles, making tournaments consistently. And then you get into Major League Baseball. And listen, I I will take this recent postseason success for the Yankees, a couple ALCS appearances compared to what they had been doing the previous six, seven years. But damn if it isn't about winning the World Series. And the Yankees have always had that mantra, but it does seem that there is, looking at the Dodgers or even the Yankees in the last three years, yeah, that's fine, but... It ain't a World Series, and that's what is, I guess, especially frustrating about the Astros situation, to tie that back in, that they got their two championships, 
or sorry, one, one or two, two, one, two, one, one, one. one. And the Nationals fortunately won this last year. They got their one championship, but it re- it's still going to be there. And I, I don't necessarily agree with taking banners down or taking records away, but what really was the cost of them doing that? They still got to experience that championship and that isn't being taken away. So I, I just continually find myself conflicted with no good answer as to what would have made me satisfied as a baseball fan as to penalties that they could have faced or even the Red Sox for two years ago. Yeah, I find that, you know, we, I talked about the, the rebuilding era that baseball has come where these teams kind of built, you know, tear it down at the part, to the parts and then rebuild back up again. And the, the point is, well, I guess the point, you know, that these teams kind of – uh, send to their their fan bases is that we are going to be in contention for multiple years with of course the goal of winning multiple championships now we haven't really seen one of those rebuilds do that have have, have win multiple championships um you know the cubs won one the astros won one um and, and the dodgers really didn't rebuild and they haven't won one but i guess what i'm trying to get to like you know i'll go from a white Sox white Sox fan perspective yes we went through this three-year rebuild you know three four-year rebuild would I be upset with only winning one championship? I, I don't think so. I, I'm still happy with the 05 championship right. as a White Sox fan just because it's, of course, still fresh enough in my memory. Um, it happened when I was at U of I, so the uh, the memories that I have are are just so much fun. Uh, I watch every game at Legends, and I will never forget that. So I think it happening in my adult life really helps. But um, uh, maybe that's part of it. But I guess – and I try to look at it from a Cubs fan perspective. I'm not a Cubs fan, but I look at the Cubs breaking that 108-year drought, which felt like it was never going to happen. And they win the championship in 2016, and of course everybody's elated. But then, not all, not you know, three four years later, everyone is so angry at Tom <laughs> Ricketts, all of these Cubs fans. Yeah. And of course, the goal of their rebuild was to win multiple championships. But you know, they made three straight NLCSs, so they had that window that was a ton of postseason games, and I think that's. I guess what I'm, I'm, I'm coming at it from a little bit of a, of, of a jealousy angle from that. Cause you know, you mentioned, you know, your Yankee fandom, you've seen a ton of ALCSs. The White Sox have never made the playoffs in back-to-back years uh, in my, you That's know, crazy. Ever, in, in their existence. And uh, you know, that is what I was looking forward to in, in the way. And I, I still am looking forward to it. I, I should still say it's, it, it will still happen. We'll still get baseball and, and the White Sox will still be in this window of contending um, for years to come, I hope. And I'm just hoping I, I want postseason games every year, uh, you know, and, you know, part of uh, the elation of a championship is brought on by the disappointment of losses. And that's what makes it all that much more sweeter. And not saying that I, I hope the White Sox, you know, lose a couple ALCSs before winning the World Series. I hope they win the next three World Series. But uh, I, I I want contention. And, I, you know, maybe I'll be, um, you know, upset a couple years from now if the White Sox, of course, I'll, I'll be I'll be upset if the White Sox never win a championship in this, in the, I guess, the, the Lewis Robert and Yohan Makata era. Um, but I'm, I'm just hoping for some postseason baseball. And, I you know, I don't want to, I guess, kick Cubs fans, but, you know, I, I don't see myself being like the majority, I think, of Cubs fans that I see on Twitter today being so angry at their team for only winning one championship in this in this window. I, I think for Cubs fans, I can re- well, I not relate, but I can understand a little bit and empathize where, you know, you got the championship and you've had this crazy run of success that 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 
franchise has never had this extended amount of success. So that's on one hand something that they should be grateful for, and I think they are. It it seems to me that the fear is probably seated in the fact that the Tribune Company for so long ran it like a business, and they knew that Wrigley Field was going to draw. I I look at it from that perspective too, and think it appears as if the Ricketts family they know what they have. They are smart business people. They don't need to go out and spend $200 million every year on, on payroll. They got the title, and they know that that buys them cachet for a long time and that they're still going to be drawing people in. So I, I think that the fear, understandable fear of Cubs fans, is that this is quickly trending back into Tribune ownership levels of almost patronizing the fan base and saying, we know you're going to come. So who cares if we're going to make one another World Series? We already got one. And, and we've seen that happen all over town, really. You know, I, I'm a, yeah, a Bears season ticket holder and, you know, uh, been a Bears fan my entire life. And, you know, the McCaskies have known that they fill the stadium up and, and they sell right. the merchandise no matter what happens and no matter who is their quarterback. Uh, you know, and the Bulls, same way, you know, the Bulls have been selling out every single game since the Jordan era. And they kind of have that cachet. And, you know, uh, when when these teams are looked at as a business and there are certain individuals that are paid handsomely to look at those teams as a business, um, you know, there's only, I guess, so much money, uh, you know, uh, I guess so much more added incentive to, to, to winning a championship, you know, because there's all, there's, there's, there's so much of a fixed cost already. So yes, I, I guess I do get that angle. And I think as we, you know, uh, this this world that we live in right now that is, uh, you know, almost seems like everything is politicized. And, of course, a lot of that is that comes from social media. And uh, everyone kind of just thinks that, uh, you know, ownership should be trying to win championships every single year and paying, you know, Bryce Harper, you know, five hundred million dollars. There's an argument to be made from from both ends. And uh, some of it is, you know, kind of has to be uh, politically based that, you know, uh, you know, we still see, I guess, uh, the old school thinking. Uh, and, you know, I remember as a kid, I never really thought about payrolls or, you know, I thought about, you know, uh, why isn't Jerry Reinsdorf spending X amount of money? And, you know, even the, the, the Pippin story that came out on the on the documentary, I don't remember that at all. Carl. I remember I, it vaguely, I, but not the details. Know? I remember vaguely that there was tension and that they were trying to trade him for Sean Kemp. The whole seven-year contract for $18 million, I don't remember that specifically. And I don't remember that he was the 122nd highest paid player in the NBA in 1997. So that part I forget. Yeah, and I'm a couple years older than you. But I, I had a conversation with somebody that's like four years older than me. And he told me – he said that you know Sunday's episodes, uh, he didn't learn anything. Like he, he knew everything yeah. that they, they talked about in the episode. And I, I said I didn't really know anything. And maybe that's just where the age gap is that you know as a, I was um, 14 you know in the 98 season, uh, I just – I guess, you know, I, I know I was reading the Tribune every day, but I, I don't really remember, I guess, the details. And, and maybe that's just comes from my age there. But, uh, you know, I, I got I think a other part of it is just kind of, you know, I, I was probably ignorant to it because I just didn't think about it. I thought about the play on the field rather than the, uh, you know, how the owner and how the GM affected the team. And, and now, uh, obviously, I'm a, a little bit more inclined to that, but I think a lot of that comes into play a lot more because of social media. Yeah, I know back in the day as a Yankees fan, there would even be adults that would see me wearing a Yankees cap and say, oh, you know, they buy their team. And even at yeah. 12 years old, I, I would say, well, I don't I don't care. It's not my money. 
Good. Let them buy whoever they want to. Uh, I was watching that documentary Sunday night, and it took me back even pre-second three-peat, because the first championship I remember from that Bulls team distinctly was 93 when Paxson hit the shot to beat the Suns, and really that whole series was intense. That was a great NBA Finals. But think about that run from really early 90s through the end of that Bulls title run, and Reinsdorf... Yeah, he was looking like a pretty damn good owner back then because I'm thinking specifically about the White Sox teams from, let's say, 93 to 95, uh, the run where they had Frank Thomas and Albert Bell and Robin Ventura. Not really so much in the way of starting pitchers, but they they had a lineup that could slug. And in 1994, uh, akin to Illinois and what they had with the basketball team this year, they had their opportunity at a playoff run taken away from them. It seems like any time I go to U.S. Cellular or back then Comiskey, Casey, I always see the Yankees lose to the White Sox. That began back then. Uh, but I, I remember those White Sox teams were a lot of fun. Yeah, I, I I always don't remember the exact specifics of the statistic, but it always kind of blows my mind. And I and I throw it at, you know, some of the younger White Sox fans. I think it's I want to say it's from 90 to 99. Um, the. The American League that won American League team that won the most games is obviously the Yankees, but second place was the White Sox. Yeah, and uh, you know they were they were a great team, and that '93 team is probably the first team I really remember falling in love with. I have a plaque right now. I'm sitting in my basement in my little um, man cave uh, bar area right here. I have a plaque of that '93 uh, White Sox team, um, and because of the, my fond memories with them. And that's just kind of what made me fall in love with baseball. And that was Tim Raines and Frank Thomas and Jack McDowell. And, you know, and the other, the other thing that I throw at younger White Sox fans is, or, you know, at Chicago fans, I guess as a whole is that Jerry Reinsdorf gave me seven championships, uh, you know, one way or another, he was the, the head of it of uh, seven championships came my way from teams that were owned by him. So it's hard for me to, to really, you know, crap on, Reinsdorf on social media because of, of those memories and, and the, the the championships that he gave me and of course I, I want more and uh you know even not winning in that Rose era certainly hurt and uh the White Sox not making the playoffs since uh 2008 definitely hurts um but you know I, I still have fond memories uh, of Reinsdorf and uh you know I'm wondering um you know he was look he uh came out I think pretty well on those first two episodes I'm wondering if uh some of that shine comes off of him in these follow following episodes that come up he looks 20 years younger than his age he's 84 years old that shocked me yeah. He looks exactly like I remember him back in the 90s because I, I just remember the images of when the Bulls would hoist the trophy and then he would be one of the first guys to pick it up. He looks exactly the same as he did back then. It's uncanny. Yeah, that's what money will do for you. Yeah, yeah I guess that is true. <laughs> uh, now, we were talking and we kind of slid a little bit there into basketball discussion as we've been doing this podcast. Adam Miller does, in fact, sign with Illinois and... So you as an Illini alum as well, correct? So you did go to school here from what years would that have been? Uh, 2002 is when I started and then I graduated in 06. Okay, so, four years. so you were a senior when the White Sox ended up winning fall of 05. Ju- uh, junior. Junior, okay. And I was, a, I was a freshman living over at Forbes in the six-pack. And the first night that I was able to go to the bars at 19 years of age was C.O. Daniels. And we got there just in time for the last three outs of that World Series against, and I think that game was at the Astros Park. Bobby Jenks getting the final out. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, but with Illinois basketball and tying it back into that, um, 
this was a year that I'm going to remember for a long time because it feels like finally they have ascended back to that place where I was used to them being, which is top four Big Ten, relevant nationally, top 20 caliber team. And getting the signing of Adam Miller, despite all the losses, Io, Andres Feliz, maybe Kofi, and then Alan Griffin transferring out. To me, what that says, Casey, is that they've solidified themselves again, and credit to Brad Underwood, as that top four Big Ten team, as a top 20 caliber national program. And I don't know when the games are going to be played, and I don't know if I can even go to them. But for me, in sports right now, I just need that little olive branch of, oh, my teams, when they get back out there, they're going to be okay. And it feels like Brad Underwood has found a way to do that. Yeah, I think so. You know, of course, you know, the Alan Griffin news when it came out, I think I had DM'd you immediately when I when I heard and just kind of like, you know, a, a what the heck moment, but just because yeah, obviously he became a fan favorite very quickly in this year that, yeah, I will not forget as well. You know, it was it was such a fun year to go kind of from the, the basement of our, you know, I, both of our feelings after that Missouri game. Uh, you know, I could pull up our DMs and I think we were both just so you know, discouraged by the entire situation. And then for it to kind of just, uh, you know, uh, incre- exponentially, uh, incrementally uh, be such good feelings after all those, you know, kind of surprising wins, winning at Wisconsin, uh, crushing Purdue twice, you know, th- this season will uh, always be memorable. And then, you know, the Griffin news and then, of course the Kofi news came out, you know, days, you know, a couple days apart. Right. And, um, it was kind of like, okay, was it just kind of that one uh, blip on the on the radar of, of what Illini basketball has come? Just this one fun year, and we're going to kind of go back to, you know, maybe even uh, talking about the bubble, you know, if we're lucky. Uh, and, you know, then this comes out, you know, at, at Miller and then um, you know, the other signing of uh, Good. Uh, you know, it, it does encourage you. And yeah, when the when the basketball team comes back, you know, I, I'll still be excited to watch. I, you know, I think Kofi will come back. I hope Kofi com- will come back and that'll be fun to watch. And, you know, you've talked a, bun- a bunch of it on your, your podcast. This team should be a little bit different than, than last year, but it's still very, very good. And, and, and that's what it's all about. You know, we to, to bring it back to the baseball conversation that we just had. You know, we just kind of want these teams to be in contention. Of course, the ultimate goal of winning the national title, but... I want a tournament game, and of course, that is what was taken away from us this year. It was just seeing our name on that board on Selection Sunday. We still didn't get to see it, so hopefully that still happens next March. Yeah, and I, th- I think it will, even without Kofi, I still think that, that team, and knowing all the transfers and just the crazy personnel changes that not just Illinois, but every team will be going through over the next six, seven months, that let's say Kofi does go that they will find some sort of depth at the center position. And they are a different team, and the identity will be different. If Kofi comes back, I think they're competing for a Big Ten title, again, based on attrition that other schools have had. And you said it, Casey, that that was going to be the moment for me, even maybe more so than the actual tournament game, was going to be the symbolism of watching Selection Sunday and seeing the name come across the screen as presumably a six seed, And feeling like, okay, I can finally exhale. We're back where we belong and where we should be basically every year. And I think that they've found their way to that plateau based on the talent they're bringing in and seemingly their ability to identify transfers, Juco kids, to round out their roster. It seems like they have things established in a way that I mentioned the opening segment today, football does not. <laughs> That's the contrast just across the street on Kirby Avenue is you got this one thing they're like, yeah, I like that. And then you got the other thing. It's like, I don't know what the hell that is. 
Yeah, my I could go on a lovey diatribe for a while because I have, of course, a ton of experience uh, of of following lovey led teams, and I have, I guess, you know, made my opinion well known on, on Twitter on how I feel about him. And you know, when he came to U of I, it was just kind of like, okay, really, I thought I got rid of this guy. <laughs> um, and you know, I I know that. Uh, you know, people can defend him. And, you know, of course, last season was a lot of fun on the on the other side of Kirby, uh, like you said. But I don't know. I, that feels much more of a blip, I guess, in this basketball season. Oh, absolutely. Was. Um, yeah. And, and yeah. And, uh, you know, I got to bring up, you know, I, I was I was so excited that Friday, March 13th was the kind of the day everything ended. And, uh, you know, the, the Illinois was slated to play Iowa in that, in that first game of the Big Ten tournament on my birthday. And oh, <laughs> I was very excited <laughs> to watch that and, and, and to lead into Sunday for Selection Sunday. And that is kind of when our when all of our lives changed and uh, just so happened to be on my birthday. That stinks. And I'm thinking about that week specifically because it was Thursday where I went in for a teacher in-service thing in preparation for parent-teacher conferences. And I'm checking my phone like every five minutes, anticipating that news will come out about the Big Ten tournament. I think that post-NBA suspension, when they suspended their season, it was starting to become real that we may not see Illinois play again. But the thing I keep going back to, Casey, and it may be a defense mechanism, is few teams in college basketball had a final moment to the season quite as satisfying as Illinois in, in the way that we beat Iowa, the rival, the heated rival at home with Kofi securing the block against Garza, with Io hitting the ultimately the game winner uh, in that game. And that and having been there in the stadium for that, that really just solidified that, you know what, it sucks that we aren't making the tournament, but damn if that isn't one of the better ways that an Illini basketball season has ended in my memory. Oh, 100%. Uh, you know, it, it, it was it – was, I guess, yeah, when we look back at it, you know, yeah, we don't have some of maybe the, the other memories that we could have had, but at least, you know, the, that is a fond memory to, 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 I guess, the yeah, the bow on top of that season. Uh, you know, a nice way to wrap it up. Um, if we want to look at it from a, a positive angle, and, and why not in this time, we, we do need to do that from time to time here. Um, I agree that, and, and there's got to be nothing better than being there in person. So I, I'm, <laughs> I'm excited for you that you got to experience that. That's got to be up there in your your top memories of, of of being at a game in person. It's up there, and you know the thing is, is we're kind of awash with nostalgia right now with the last dance, and you're doing the ninety or sorry the 2005 White Sox um, year in review thing. Which last year there was a Yankees one for the 09 team, and I was following that on Twitter, and it's a lot of fun even in a non-pandemic year to do a little bit of remember when, but it was so satisfying to actually live in a current sports moment that mattered. And as you're watching it, you know that 10, 15, 20 years down the road, you will remember that moment. And that's what makes, I think, it all the more tantalizing that sports will resume and those moments will come back, even if it's via a TV screen and I'm not actually in the stadium, I'll take it and know that uh, there are more memories, I guess, to be made uh, to add to the Remember One file. Absolutely. You know, well, yeah, we'll get them back eventually here. And, yeah, you know, it, it's been fun to take a little bit of a step back and just, to kind of take in all of these, you know, there's a replay of, of some old classic game on, on every channel right now. And, uh, you know, it's it's been fun. It'll get old. It's starting to get old a little bit. But, you know, uh, at least there are some talks about, you know, when we can start seeing stuff. But we'll see. You know, hopefully everyone is is safe. And, you know, that's that's the most important thing that everyone is is smart with the decisions on bringing these back because 
they'll be back eventually. Last thing I wanted to ask you about, Casey, is you are a Better Call Saul fan. And I guess by extension, that would mean you're also a Breaking Bad fan, correct? Um, absolutely. Okay. And Better Call Saul wraps up its fifth season. And I'll avoid, I guess, any big spoilers because a lot of these episodes, I don't know if they're already putting season five on Netflix or not, but uh, they might be getting that up there a little bit quicker with the pandemic. To me, as I'm watching this show unfold and going back at the same time, and I'm in middle of season two of Breaking Bad on my second rewatch, Breaking Bad was fantastic. It had so many peak moments. But for me, the actual artistry and expertly crafted drama, A Better Call Saul, it it rivals Breaking Bad. I I think they're more like 1A, 1B as opposed to, oh, Better Call Saul is just the spinoff show. I agree. Uh, I I think that, you know, I've read a couple articles here after the finale aired that a lot of people are saying that it's even better than Breaking Bad. I haven't got there yet. I agree. I also I also think I haven't gotten there yet because I I, want to see how they wrap it up. Of course, we know there's only one season left. And the thing that will and I do need to I have not rewatched Breaking Bad. I've still only watched it the original time. Granted, I watched the finale episode, I would say, at least three or four times because um, it was one of my favorite episodes just ever uh, of any television show. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I loved that finale and the way that that show wrapped up was just so uh, expertly done. And that's kind of why I'm, I'm holding back um, on, on even where to grade. Yes, it's been great. I, I've loved the ride. The season was outstanding. Um, both, you know, the, the third to last and the second to last episodes, I think, are all-timers for Saul. You yeah. know, I thought the finale was very, very good. Um, it felt like a little bit more of, I guess, a, a Game, the Th- Game of Thrones-style setup where, you know, Game of Thrones always had the big episode as the penultimate episode. And then the the, the season finale was always kind of a, a setting up chess pieces for yeah, the next season. Now, absolutely. There was a little bit more action that happened in the, in this finale of Saul, but you know it still felt uh, a, a little bit of a step down, especially from from where the penultimate episode ended <laughs> of this season. Uh, not to to give any spoilers, but I want to see um, how it sticks to landing. Uh, I want to see you know what they'll do with Saul post Breaking Bad because I think we might get some of that. Next yeah, season. probably. Um, and of course, I, I want to know what happens to Kim because I think that's that's the ultimate question. She's just the rock star of the show. Um, if she doesn't win an Emmy, something is very, very wrong. Um, I, I kind of joked around that I think I, I want some way for uh, I don't know how far you are in Ozark, but I, I want some way for um, for, for uh, Ruth Langmore in, in Ozark <laughs> and for Kim to to win Emmys. So maybe yeah. one goes, maybe one nominates themselves as supporting, one nominates themselves as as uh, lead. I, mean, I think. Uh, Kim Wexler's can probably be considered the lead. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So, so hopefully that's what happens and they can both win because I think they're both just two of the all time TV characters that we've ever seen. Um, But yeah, what an amazing season. And I think, you know, uh, going from the skepticism of of what was going to happen when, when they announced that this show was, was going to come, was going to appear and to go from, um, like I said, how much I love that finale and how I just kind of wanted I wanted Breaking Bad to just stay in this little box and never be disrupted by anything because I thought it was so perfect and to be a little skeptical of a, of a prequel. Um, the fact that they've taken that feeling, you know, for me personally and still been able to have me love a show that 
you know has taken the season has taken that series and expanded it uh, i think is an accomplishment in its own um and i i think that uh you know it, it could be up there i don't know if it'll ever if i can ever consider it to go past breaking bad but we'll see you know if i get that same feeling that i got after uh felina was the name of that episode of, of the last episode yep, of breaking bad. last one yeah uh, if if I get that feeling again, um, then I, I could certainly uh, consider it in the, in the conversation. You mentioned Breaking Bad and how they stuck the landing. And as I'm watching this, the episode we're going to watch tonight actually is Better Call Saul. So Saul gets introduced. So we're mid-season two. And I keep telling Kara, this is where it really gets going. Even though early like season one and early parts of season two, it's still wildly entertaining. But it really, really starts to pick up late season two. And I remember distinctly as I binged Breaking Bad for the first time. And, and to me, that show is tailor-made for binging. And I feel like I'll even appreciate Better Call Saul more when I go back on the rewatch and do two episodes a night or whatever. That final season of Breaking Bad is the most just consistently exhausting TV to watch the last three, four episodes where I... I genuinely didn't know what was going to happen, and there were certain things that took place where I thought, well, all bets are off. They can get rid of this character, so that means anyone can go. Uh, and that I continue to think, as good as Better Call Saul is, uh, those peak moments of Breaking Bad, which happened throughout the series, make it more memorable, even if Better Call Saul might be, as I saw one critic put it, better at storytelling, Breaking Bad was the better story. I agree. And yeah, it does lose, you know, just that little percentage of a degree where you know that, of course, certain characters are going to make it out alive. Um, that does does hurt the show a little bit, and, and that's just kind of the nature of the beast. But um, that not, you know, having that feeling of where anything could happen in Breaking Bad probably will, yeah, might be the difference between considering these two series when we we look at it when when yeah. all is said and done. Uh, Ozark, we did get through season one. I liked it a lot. I liked the pilot more than I liked the rest of the season, which I think was like a seven, seven and a half out of ten, though everyone continues to say, keep watching, it gets better and better. So we'll pick that back up, but we didn't want to absorb Ozark in, in one setting. We, we've done that with Friday Night Lights, and then it ended, and then we were sad. So we're just going to kind of take our time, I think, with Ozark and enjoy this Breaking Bad rewatch, but is it true that Ozark just gets exponentially better as it goes along? Yes. And I actually, I almost stopped after season one because I felt the same. I, you know, I love the idea and the pilot was good. I mm -hmm. thought it was, I thought it was a little too dark actually. Uh, I season one. Yeah. Um, you know, I thought that they were going, obviously they, the, the show was very much influenced by breaking bad. And I thought they just kind of, you know, took it to a, a, a depth that I wasn't, I guess I wasn't really comfortable watching. I, I didn't like it as much. Um, somebody told me to, to watch season two, um, and I'm glad I did. And then season three is just a whole different thing. Okay, um, cool. You know, it just gets better and better. Season three is is a is a wonderful piece of TV, and uh, you know, I, I hold back on kind of these Netflix shows because obviously, I you know, I think that they're, you know, it, they haven't earned our respect quite yet. But I think that. Ozark might be the the, the linchpin of, of what Netflix can do because uh, it's a it's an incredible show. Yeah, and that seems to be the consensus with it. I agree with the darkness of it, and I don't mind dark. I mean, Breaking Bad got super dark. The Sopranos yeah. was always dark, and that's still my favorite show of all time. But the the key with the Sopranos and Breaking Bad specifically is it was also funny. There was a lot of humor. And even if it was very dark humor, to me I didn't find much humor in season one of Ozark, apart from Bateman just being generally a smartass, 
and occasionally some of the natives, just their quirks. Uh, but does does it get funnier, I guess? Is is that something that they match the darkness with humor, or does it just find a way to ratchet up the action? Um, Buddy is very, very good in season two, um, and, and a little bit more of comic relief. So uh, okay. that that's something that I... I uh, even three, I think that's, you know, um, not, yeah, it's not really a funny show, but I think Breaking Bad didn't, wasn't really funny at the end either. I guess it wasn't at the end. Were. No, at the last, yeah. the last half of season five from the moment that, uh, oh, I see, I, if I say that I would spoil it, if anyone hasn't seen it, but right where season five splits with the revelation, if you know what yeah. I'm talking about, yeah, I do. Yeah. The last eight episodes are just, uh, it, just like the last se- season of the Sopranos is the last eight episodes of The Sopranos, hopelessly dark. This is There's no redemption, really. I guess there is to an extent in Breaking Bad, but very little in the way of redemption of those stories, and they do not end with a whole lot of jokey stuff like they did in the early days. There, I, now that I think about it, there is a character, a new character, so I will not tell you who it is or, or what relation, but in, in season three that comes up, that he, he is... A little bit more of a comic relief. He's he's actually been mentioned. I'll say that, but uh, okay, you'd you have to go back and figure it out. But um, yeah, yeah, it, it's it's still you know that I I think maybe they just kind of embrace the the atmosphere a little bit better. It's 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 more realistic. I will say uh, the darkness um, that and I think that some of the darkness in season one felt like oh come on <laughs> you know yeah. are people could people really be like this could is this stuff really happening um i think that was part of my problem watching season one someday i'll go back and rewatch it and just kind of i guess get a little bit more of you know looking back after watching the full show um you know where where i think the show aired but you know again i think part of that was netflix obviously I think has just continued to spend money on the show because they know that they have a gem. And I think yeah. I, I've, I tweeted out after I, I, I finished season three, like what changed? Because I just kind of want to know whether I need to read like a, a, a breakdown of, of what happened with the writers or something, something had to change because the show just got dramatically better. So I, I think it's probably just Netflix made a whole lot of money since the first season of, of Ozark aired and, and, and uh, they just kind of, poured it into that show because they knew they had something good. Yeah, I noticed that for the shows that I really like, the setting plays a big role. So, for example, I, I even told Kara, why don't we move to Albuquerque? You know, it seems warm and it looks beautiful out there and kind of quirky, you know, just based off of liking Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. Back in the day, I used to think, yeah, it'd be kind of cool to live in Jersey, which maybe it wouldn't be cool at all, but the Sopranos lived out there, so it's kind of cool. Ozark, from the outset, and the very last shot of episode one, the pilot, where they zoom out on just the grandeur. I mean, it's beautiful down there. I've never been, yeah. but I'm like, God damn, I would, I would totally love to live in the Ozark. So I'm noticing that a lot of my favorite shows setting continues to be kind of a hook for me. And they got that in season one, but it's, it's promising to hear that they, maybe they just figured out what their identity is. And, and it's not as, as, contrived as I felt parts of season one were that they maybe just got more comfortable with what the show is and what they're best at. Yeah, I can see that. The show I'm rewatching right now is The Wire, and uh, oh, I, it does not make me want to live in no. Baltimore at all. <laughs> <laughs> Great show, and one that... No offense to Baltimore. No, not at all. Uh, and th- that is a tremendous show, and I'd recommend it to anybody. Though, though what separates... The Sopranos and The Wire to me, and they're very different, apples and oranges. The Wire is very documentarian, and The Sopranos is full-on Shakespearean drama, really. So they, they are apples and oranges. 
But when I look at The Wire, as much as I respect the hell out of the depth and the details of that show and the social commentary, and it is like the TV equivalent of this book that I had to read in college called The Power Broker, which is about Robert Moses, who basically ran the city of New York for decades. But he was never the mayor. He was basically the city planner and designer. Uh, The Wire gets into such depth, and I respect it, and yet it never had the same emotional hook as The Sopranos did for me, which that may be just total subjective stuff, but damn if it isn't an excellent show, an all-timer. It's one of the best. Well, some of the deaths, uh, you know, you certainly, I I think, are pulled, and of course I haven't got to those yet. I just started season one, but, you know, I I won't bring them up just in case anybody wants to watch a show, but, um, you know, of course... The, the famous one, uh, the guy who mm-hmm. uh, went on to, to, to Friday Night Lights, um, you know, you know, that that one still stings, you know. And Absolutely. There, there's, a, there's quite a few of those that happen in the show. But you're right. There's not really, you know, uh, even familial, you know, fa- familial stories. Uh, you know, th- that that doesn't that's not what The Wire is about. No, no. Nope, nope. And I, I, I actually I've never watched The Sopranos, Carp. Oh. I'm, I'm sorry to say uh, it's just I don't know why I never have. I need to. I know that I have to just to kind of cover all my bases. But, um, you know, knowing, I guess, enough and even from your description, you know, there's that family aspect of it that's just going to bring in a different emotion than a show like The Wire. Yeah. The Sopranos still hits hard. I probably do a rewatch every year. You know, whereas the most I've ever rewatched any other show, I think Breaking Bad, this is the second rewatch and Sopranos, I'd be on like seven or eight. And there's a tremendous, well, Alan Seppenwall's the TV critic that you probably read some of the stuff about Better Call Saul. I actually reached out to him to try to get him on the podcast and he responded and said, hey, I'm loaded with writing and doing my own podcast, but appreciate reaching out. So I was like, damn it, because he had a book called The Sopranos Sessions, which goes in depth in every single episode it's like a 400 page book i went through i went through that sucker in two days i just i totally absorbed that book and then went back and rewatched it right again so i can't recommend it enough and i i couldn't give it enough praise where you would watch it and then be underwhelmed it's james gandolfini as tony soprano that is the absolute best performance in tv history and i will fight that brian cranston great uh Kim Wexler or Ray Seahorn, awesome. Uh, but man, James Gandolfini is Tony Soprano. That's that's the one. I was gonna say I just need to find a time to do it, but I guess what better time? Yeah, than yeah, now? we got time. We got time. Well, Casey, I appreciate uh, your time this afternoon, and a good afternoon for Illinois fans getting Adam uh, Miller to sign the letter of intent. So he will be here at the University of Illinois whenever games do resume. He will be wearing an Illini uniform. Great talking baseball whenever it may happen. It's. To me, it's just that light at the end of the tunnel, Casey, knowing that we will get it at some point, that both of our teams seem to be feeling pretty good about their future prospects. And uh, man, how sweet will it be whenever we can sit on the couch and watch a game uh, of two teams playing in some minor league stadium in Arizona at 7 a.m. Mountain Time. That seems to be a maybe, maybe a possibility. One can hope and dream, right? Well, Casey, take care, uh, you and your family, and we'll be in touch because there will be news about baseball coming up, and I'd love to have you back on sometime down the road. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me, Carl. Take care, Casey. We'll see you. All right, Casey Bogoslaw on the 200 level as we wrap up this episode, episode 81, Miller time. And oh, there goes the Skype sound. It's a good day for Illini fans, and I appreciate that conversation with Casey, which I know went a little bit longer, but what the hell? We got time to have these uh, wide-ranging conversations about baseball, about sports and then about tv because you know what we're watching a lot of tv most of us are right now so uh gotta thank dp doe online at dp 
for all the best deals and prices, and they deliver anywhere in Champaign-Urbana. That's key, especially during the shelter-in-place. DPDO.com. Fourth and Kirby online at fourthandkirby.com. Coupon code 200LEVEL or the 200LEVEL for 10% off your order. And Brian Hansen, State Farm Agent online at brianismyguy.com for all your insurance needs. And these are Champaign-Urbana products, so they have your local interest at heart. That's brianismyguy.com. For Alana Inquirer, for the Champagne Showers Podcast Network on Twitter at 217showers. We will see you next week. Uh, we're getting this one out a little bit early, so you can listen to some Adam Miller reaction. Listen to me complain a little bit about Lovey Smith, which that seems to be a recurring theme on this show. And we will be back next Monday with another Last Dance recap with Trevor and Harry. And I guess if any crazy news happens, the great thing about being home as much as I am right now, I can hop right back on the mic and join you guys. But for now, it'll be next Monday for episode 82, The Last Dance Parts 3 and 4. Thanks again to Casey Boguslaw for a great conversation there. And we will see you all soon. It is the 200 level.